Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. On this podcast, I talk with a range of conservationists every single week, from scientists, students, creatives, innovators, and everyone in between. I hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story, educate, collaborate, and ultimately inspire action. So if you want to join our conservation tribe, then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to the Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. And today we are joined by Nicholas Rocco Tapari, an ecologist and freelance photographer and videographer based in Australia. So cheers, mate, for coming on the show. Oh, thank you very much. It's great to be able to catch up. I know we've been trying for a little while and uh, it's finally, yeah, it's finally happening. I like it. Yeah, it's been a little while in the making, but I'm glad that we've uh, managed to come to it now. So today's episode is generally got to be about the communication of conservation and science, but specifically, you know, how you approach it, the mediums that you use to communicate a message. But before we do that, can you please introduce yourself? Uh, yes. Yeah, so as you said, and you pronounce it really well, my name is Nicholas Rakatopari. I'm a nature and science photographer and filmmaker. So I work a lot in the science and about, and especially project about threatened species and conservation. So I do a wide range of things in that sort of like realm. I shoot, I edit, I do science communication. I do a lot of tutoring as well, teaching. So a bit of everything, but always with that nature and science sort of component to it. And what inspired you to work in this space of wildlife documentation and science communication? Um, well, with like, I guess like a lot of classic answer, I just really like wildlife. I really like nature. Uh, I grew up in Madagascar. I was born in Madagascar. I started shooting really early. Um, my parents got me my first film camera when I was 14, but uh, I never really shot. I never really realized I was already like shooting wildlife. But even now, when I look back at some of the family holiday photos I used to take, I was already photographing uh, chameleons and lizards and birds and just just for fun. And, uh, and then when I did my degree in conservation biology, I sort of like merged everything in one, like the media side of thing and the ecology side of thing. Madagascar, I imagine it would be hard uh, not to be in love with nature, being born and raised in a country like that. It is a fascinating place. It's, and it was very different for me growing up there and uh, coming back after I got my science degree and had a bit more experience. It really opens your eyes to a lot of things. And it is an incredible place. But for a biologist, nature lover, it is a bit of an emotional roller coaster as well because um, the state of things isn't the greatest in some areas. So yeah, it's always a bit of a bad roller coaster. Can you expand a bit on that? So it's emotional roller coaster, obviously, because a lot of species and ecosystems are suffering. Yeah, well, basically, like I can't remember the exact stats, stats, but Madagascar lost like 90% of forest cover in the past 100 years. And um, so they've lost a lot, a lot, a lot uh, of um, their forest cover. Therefore, like the wildlife is not faring the greatest. It's an extremely poor country. And uh, so you have this sort of like cocktail, which makes it like a classic, case, complicated case of like conservation biology, where there's problems like with the population and with the, with the wildlife. And so all the projects that are happening, they're always trying to like work on both levels at the same time, which makes things really, really difficult. There are some some great projects that, that do great work, but it is in general really difficult. So the emotional roller coaster I was talking about, it's the 
the fact that you're here and you're going to a national park, you're looking for these specific species of golden bamboo lemur, and then you find them and you're photographing them, you're looking at these individuals, you're like, this is incredible, I've only seen this in documentaries, and and then you remember that there's only about five or 600 left in, in the wilds and uh, only within that one national park. So it's sort of like this this roller coaster, emotional roller coaster, where it's, it happens a lot. There's a lot of things you're looking at. You're like, this is amazing. This is something I've always wanted to see. But because I know about it, I know about what's happening and I know its status. I'm like, this is the problem as well. Yeah, that's I can definitely imagine why that would be so kind of heartbreaking to see especially if you have you know you've got that relationship being born there uh, yeah. and raised there and that's like your home it is it must just, just hit hard it's it very very hard something i did a few years ago which was very interesting is i went back to madagascar with about 10 of my friends that studied with me and so when we graduated we're like oh you know when you turn 30 you'll take us to madagascar and we all kind of forgot about it until two friends bought their tickets five years later and like all right we're coming are you going to pick us up and so that got the ball rolling and it was about yeah 11 of us all biologists naturalists and they'd never been to madagascar they only knew of madagascar through documentaries i organized the whole trip for them and uh and just seeing through their eyes how they were discovering the country what they were expecting like every night we're just having this like really really interesting conversation because a lot of them didn't realize that from the point they were landing and they would they would need to drive for hours outside of the main city to see a single sort of like piece of native forest for like hours it's all just rice fields and then planted australian acacias and australian eucalypts that are used for charcoal or to hold the soil because there's so little forest left, there's a lot of erosion issues. So it was very interesting. And as I said, there was a lot of that emotional roller coaster happening because they were all biologists. They knew what they were looking at and they knew how rare it was and all the issues that went along with it. So it made for a very interesting trip. Is it a, an expensive place to to kind of visit? It's you know, obviously quite isolated from other places. Yeah, so coming from Australia, yeah, it can be a little, a little, compl- little expensive to get to because the, the most direct way is via Perth. And uh, you fly to Perth and from Perth, you fly to Mauritius Island. From Mauritius, you fly to Reunion Island. And from Reunion, you fly to Madagascar. And uh, that's sort of the fastest way. When, when when we did it, my friends flew from Australia to Asia, Asia to Africa, and Africa to Kenya to, to, to Tana, which is the main city. And so it does get a little pricey. Once you get there, things are fairly cheap on the ground. And, uh, but yeah, it is, a, it is quite a pricey trip. Yeah, it's definitely a place that I'd love to visit one day but yeah i kind of had an inkling it would be quite expensive and therefore it it, it is a little bit hard to travel through as well sometimes and the road network isn't the greatest so things take a long like take a long time yeah if you want to go by the road and the two local airlines don't have a huge amount of planes and or sort of um they don't fly to huge amount of areas sort of thing so they're getting better but uh, yeah, if you do a lot of things, like we did everything by the via the roads, and it does like chew up a lot of your travel time because you travel slowly. It's a great way to like see things, and uh, but yeah, it, it's a it's a very interesting country to travel through. One thing that I'm interested in is how people connect kind of different careers with conservation and environmental kind of issues. Like for me, as an architect and someone who's working at the moment in digital marketing, how I can link that with conservation somehow. So how do you link your work as a photographer and videographer with conservation? 
Uh, well, there's like there's plenty of ways to do it, and that's that's what I like about a lot of people doing that is they often come from a very very like a wide range of backgrounds. So you say you come from this like architecture background before biology. I was studying software engineering, and so people come from like a whole like sort of like lifestyles and gravitate towards that, and it brings a whole like sort of you know ideas. We we're talking about that just before how you bring that design idea that we like that aesthetic, and um and I now come with all this um all my, my science background and the the media and the storytelling trying to to mix that so to go back to your question how do i link that with uh, the photography and the videography with conservation it's it's in like a range of things so I, I do a lot of work on threatened species and not directly maybe about the wildlife but about the people studying the wildlife and so through that through bringing that sort of like media capacity to these people i highlight their project and therefore the conservation outcomes of what they're doing. And um, there's other things like when I do, I do a fair few workshops on filmmaking and photography for early career scientists. And so, because they are the ones that that sort of like hold, you know, the the key to the, the science part of the conservation. And uh, by giving them the tools and teaching them how to best tell the story in a without being a problem uh, on their fieldwork. So yeah. Basically, like I do a lot of things where they tell me we want to show the people what we're doing, what conservation work we're doing, but we have so much work to do on the ground while we're doing it that we just can't think about it. It's too complicated to create videos and photos. So I do workshops where I have 20 or 30 scientists with me and I show them the basic tools and I help them a little bit how to break down the sort of like filmmaking and photography beast into like little little bits that they can then incorporate into their field work and get media and content for that and tell the story sort of thing. And uh, other things I do is by mixing photography and videography. When I do, I did a lot of tutoring in uh, Borneo for students flying in for one week, two weeks. I did that in uh, Sulawesi as well. And especially in Borneo, what I was doing, I was always including as part of the field biology course, always including every day one to two hours of photography and filmmaking for science purpose, because those students will be the one working on conservation and so it's giving them the tools to be able to promote the conservation work they're doing, to promote the, their friends' conservation work if they don't want to be in front of the camera. Like all the things, just giving them the tools through photography and videography to showcase their, their projects. And the last sort of thing that I do is a lot of like passion projects, which relates to what we might talk a bit later. Um, social media, doing videos that are informative or posted are informative, a bit different than like a regular sort of cute, cuddly, fluffy posts or just uh, things like that so yeah interesting so your link a lot of it is um with helping other conservationists yes. or biologists yeah. helping yeah. people and yeah. helping them amplify their work pretty much yeah and then using like it's getting it's basically getting a different sort of output from their work so it's depending where they are in their career but they, they, they're working on conservation and uh, the specific topic they're working on or the threatened species or whatever they're doing might not be the easiest thing to tell visually and uh, and so therefore you you give them the tools to try and like break it down and, and tell it themselves because they are the best person like sort of there to do it but also for the work I do I, uh, I work for the, the threatened species recovery hub a lot and so they have a lot of projects around Australia but um, I can't go everywhere and film and photograph everything and film everything and so by by doing so when you have 20 or 30 scientists in one go you give them all the tools and be like all you need is a smartphone a good mic a tripod and uh, think about this there think about this now and then 
send us the footage back and we'll edit it. So I do a lot of that as well. I edit very simple footage that I get back from scientists. And so it's just transforming. They make a science paper, but uh, that science paper is towards one, one audience. It's for scientists. It's they're quite complicated to read. And so it's basically the idea is to transform that into something that's tailored for social media for a different audience that is more easily understandable without going into the sort of classic case that you'll see a lot in the in the media of trying to get like just one bit of hype on one project or something like just trying to tell the science story as is but um in a in different medium i'm like extremely fascinated about this idea and i've always because i don't have that science background um i was always wondering as a field biologist if there was a desire to kind of learn 21st century communication skills to help convey their message and it seems there like there, 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 is, there is a desire there is a big desire science communication is a uh, is massive across a lot, a lot of organization and universities it's done in a, like a lot of different ways but it definitely is a desire and there's a range of like there's a range of desire some people just want to be able to get better photos so that they can write on their blogs and have better imagery to showcase because they're always like oh my study piece is hard to photograph how how can i do this so how can i fix that so it can be as simple as that but some people are actually more like already a little bit handy with the camera and they're like i want to take this to the next level but uh, a lot of the content and the tutorials and everything i found online are tailored to something very specific the, the travel industry things like that i want something that's really for the for like for like science mm-hmm. and so that's there is a really big a really big demand and when you look at some of the some of my personal heroes and and people i really that i really like love the work quite often when i do a bit of like background reading about them they are ex-biologists ex-field biologists um tim layman a tropical biologist uh, christian ziegler and uh, a lot of those people come from a science background so i really connect with their work and and uh, so they're like the extreme of like biologists becoming like incredible like filmmaker and a photographer but it's just showing people that there is like a range of things you can do it's all about what you what you want to do and what what story do you have to tell and giving them the tools to do so okay so it's good to know that there is a desire there because i think that's like critical is these people that are doing this amazing work to kind of not only share the research that they've discovered but also to inspire up-and-coming field biologists as well like there's a there's a two-pronged And especially now it. that the, the, the technology has gone so far that uh, that you can actually, with, with sort of like small packages, create incredible, absolutely incredible content. 100%. And uh, and it's just it's just gone. gone there. So there's a lot. There's, there's a big demand uh, for that. And I really love that because, as you said, it's giving them the tools. And, uh, and, uh, and it's happened a few times this year. So I've, I've had footage sent to me by some people that attended my, uh, my workshop. And uh, so I was editing using the footage they made, they, they shot on their, their mobile phone, and it just turned out great because uh, you just needed a few little things to break it down for them and to like make it so it doesn't look as this big thing. I can't do that in my research, but if you actually help them, you're like, ah, oh, I'm gonna do that, and now I'm gonna be a, now I have all those like tips and dot points. That's all it takes. I can shoot that, and someone will be able to like edit it, or maybe I'll try and edit it myself, and just things like that. It's yeah. it's been really rewarding. And how do you connect with these people? Do they kind of reach out to you? Is it friends of friends? Is it kind of people that you studied with? Uh, a bit of a bit of everything. It's a, I kept uh, like I kept in contact with a lot of people. So after I graduated, I worked as an ecologist for a few years, 
and I kept in touch with a lot of people, a lot of uh, contact. It's all about that that network. We all talk about the network, but that's that's what it is. So I kept in touch with my friends, what what uh, research they're doing, and uh, and a big thing was to actually because when I, I've only been freelance for about two and a half years, and uh, that was my my problem was that I have I had a massive ecology sort of network, but not like no one in media at all. So trying to like bridge that gap and uh, trying to find people that that were able to like send me on, on this sort of assignments for them, for their researchers. But what I did, I just shot everything by myself until I had uh, one particular idea. And I was like, I'm going to shoot that and I'm going to use it as a pitch. And that was about two and a half years ago. And that's how it really, really started. I spent two weeks with um, one of my best friends. He was studying Northern Quals in the Pilbara in Western Australia. And uh, I spent some time with him and we decided, I was like, look, that's a great project. And it was just the two of us for two weeks. And I was like, let's, I'm going to film you. I'm going to interview you a little bit. I have, and I had the tiniest setup possible because we had so much to carry. And I'm like, we'll just do it. That, and that's going to be my sort of like pitch project. I'm going to use that to approach different uh, NGOs and different unis and, and see, show them what I can do as a one man band. And, uh, and yeah, you're going to be the sort of like head project and it turned out quite well. But, uh, same, it just slowly uh, accumulating. That's the, I love that. Like, you know, equipping them with the tools. One project that I have in the works at the moment, which I'm hoping to do, is to start a YouTube channel that's dedicated to um, helping environmentalists and conservationists amplify the impact using social media. So from basic tutorials, such as what hashtags you use for a particular niche, content ideas, you know, how to do your bio, how to write a caption, all those things. But that's something that that's a huge, that, that, that would be huge. And there's, again, the, the, I can guarantee you there's huge demand for that because you get excited. what I do. Because like I, I, think- I have no idea if there is actually a demand just because I'm like, I'm, I'm in this space, but I'm not in it yet fully. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't know a lot of people um, intimately in this space to so be aware of kind of what they want and what they want to see. So you telling me this is like music to my ears. There is because it was when was it? about 10 or 12 days ago, I was on assignment in Western Australia and they were talking because it was, I was out there with the Karajiri Rangers, which I had met uh, at another event in the, the Great Sandy Desert a few months ago. And they were, they were talking about something that I produced from the first trip. And, uh, and I was just telling them a little bit how we made sure that as many people as possible saw that because it's one thing to shoot it, but when you invest uh, money and time into a, into a video or a photo and assignment, you want to maximize your reach. You want to make sure like it doesn't just die somewhere in the corner of the internet. And I don't, I don't know a huge deal about how it all works, but I know enough to sort of like maximize that. And I was telling them little things and they were all just um, like the, 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 the media person from the NGOs and things, which is fascinating about all the things that you can do to try and actually help your content being being seen things as simple as like you know they all thought that by uploading a video to youtube and just sharing the the link on facebook that's that's enough whereas that's that yielded something like 30 views in like a month where we were like then we took over like now you have to upload it natively you can you have lots of different projects that want to share the video you can set up cross posting all those little things and yeah. uh, and I was just like opening the eyes, like because we we need that, and it's the same with like with scientists, like a lot of the a lot of I would say a lot of like the early career scientists probably know more about that than uh, than we think, but um but yeah, there is definitely a, a need for that for because that. it's one thing to create the content, it's another one to try and maximize yeah. the, your audience. So the theme of the podcast is obviously around SciComm. 
and also ConCom, so conservation communication. But why do you I think like that. Con-com. <laughs> I like that ConCom? <laughs> but why do you think education and and communication is actually important in conserving species and ecosystem? Why is it important? Because it's I think it's been it's something that we've I've heard for a very long time, and it's we keep on repeating it, and we just we just can't forget it, and we have to keep going at it. It's just that if people like know about things, they're more likely to care. They're more likely to share about it. They're more likely to come up with new ideas, which goes back to what I was saying, giving the tools to people, because they might come up with a new way of sharing something or a new idea that I, I didn't think about. And uh, so it's all about sharing that knowledge. And uh, and because that increases like everything on so many levels, you can get someone a new idea, showcase a project, you can get family and friends to, to talk about it to other family and friends. It's, it only takes one person. And we always, I guess, often we do forget about that. And it just takes you to like fascinate one person mm. for them to like talk to another person, talk to another person and get sort of like a snow, even at sort of like local scale. If you think about all the small snowball effects and local scales people can have around the world, you can like increase that. And so that's why it's really important to educate so that the information used spreads. and the information spreads is accurate. It's correct. Yeah. That's another thing is we live in a, in a world where information can spread rapidly, right? Like we can, it's just so easy to put information out there into the interwebs, but whether or not that information is true or not is another question. And it's hard to decipher on the surface whether it is accurate. Like it's, it's hard to know immediately unless you kind of actually hop on Google and, and research, do some background research on the topic. So yeah, I think that is a is a problem is fake news and how do we mitigate that? Like one one kind of idea that I'm thinking about in my head is when you're at uni and you write an essay, you, you need to reference all your sources into your essay. And is there a way to potentially do that on social media? Like it, I wish Instagram had clickable links in their caption because you could more easily reference sources in your yeah, caption. Yeah, but people don't want to have to click on the bio and like go through it. Yeah, it because that's amounts. It's just yeah. too much friction, you know. It's like, oh, that will take me thirty seconds. I don't have enough time for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's something you have to like, yeah, also like taking taking account a lot when you're doing like com com and science <laughs> communication as well. Yeah, like yeah. how to just yeah like fit into that sort of like space. Yeah. But and that's also really important. Think it's really important because there is a lot of misinformation online. There is a lot of uh, I'm I. I you know, there's great things to social media. There's terrible things to to social media. And one of the things that that, that is like my pet peeve, it's you know all those accounts just sharing images that are actually you know as a biologist or as someone that's educated on the matter that you know it's animal cruelty. It's uh, it's oh, completely unethical, unethical photography, and uh, and things like and so and and they have incredible audiences. I'm talking millions of followers. And, uh, and so these should not be the people doing sort of like science, not doing science, but like talking about those topics. The, the scientists should be the one talking about their species or about because they're the ones who know the best and, and know what's what's the goal. So, yeah, it's, that's why it's also really important, I think, to try and get as many scientists, early career scientists, naturalists, as many people as possible on the on the platforms and, and get them to like a level where. You know, my dream is to have like scientists, field biologists with a, you know, millions of followers everywhere. Oh, that that would like be my dream as well. Tailored to that because yeah, it, it is like there are a few like 
incredibly big account that doing they're doing an incredible amount of damage like there's not i haven't seen any research on the link between these people that share damaging photos you know people that may have a tiger and they're swimming with the tiger in the pool or bathing a chimpanzee like these are damaging things that fuel the legal penetrate we're thinking about the same person because we're referring to probably i know really well but yeah yeah like these things are damaging you you only have to look in their comment section to see people be like well where can i buy a pet chimpanzee kind of thing yeah exactly like that and that's their reach is incredible and yeah the damage as you, as you say, there might not be empirical data about how much damage they do, but just by knowing the huge audience they have, you know that just statistically speaking, even if in like you know one percent of those people actually want to get chimpanzees or things, that you will like there will be issues. That there are problems, and they they're just building this aura. And uh, again, it's just we're not digressing here. It's actually really on topic. Uh, we've had an incident where some very like eminent scientists went and commented on a photo being like that's actually pretty terrible behavior for xyz is this jane good and, uh, and, no oh. no no but uh there were some some people that like uh, ornithologists and people that know like a lot about that sort of like area and uh but we and same like i joined in a bit and trying to because we're always trying we're always trying to do it in a very like polite sideways and we got yeah, absolutely totally. slammed by the by their like audience like yeah. people just like yeah and like we're just it was just an absolute like war so yeah so that's why we need more of uh of nature but like factual nature wildlife and communicate it to that audience so that they can because it can you can quickly like see as well like in those comment sections that some people actually realizing being like oh i had no idea and uh, they do their bit of research like oh indeed i just looked at this and that so you can see that it can work it just needs to be like like scaled up i, I think there is a ignorance factor to it as well a lot of these people probably are animal lovers right but they just are they're uneducated on this idea of what harm they're doing maybe and then once they start and they get all this attention and all this insta fame, it then becomes harder to change. It does. But then the thing is that attracts other people to that kind of lifestyle because we live in a world where everyone wants to be insta famous. And if they see that a video of someone bathing a chimpanzee is getting over a million views on Instagram and Facebook, they will also try and replicate that perhaps if they're in a position to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I'm, I'm fascinated with this idea of are we able to like an animal to extinction? Yeah, that's that's a very valid point. You know, there are so like a very, there would be like a few, you know, the few species that you see come back a lot uh, on the on feeds and things that I would kind of think like, yeah, there is an actual risk to be like really damaging, really, really damaging. Because as you said, like it's it's millions of views. It's really, I'm pretty sure if we dig a little bit, I don't have like uh, the references, but we would find people looked at the sort of damage of social media to like the to poaching or to the actual trade of specific species. Can you talk a bit more about why social media is important in um, the space of conservation communication? Like why is it important for scientists and biologists to hop on board? Because well, I see it in like in different ways, like for, for the biologists, I see it like to another space to sort of show what they're doing, show their research or where they're working and uh, and just get more out of like their projects as a purely sort of like career side of things just showing 
showing more. There's so many great like scientists who you know like publish really good papers and also like do a lot of great work on social media. And I think that it's just like amazing. And that's why I think people should pay more attention. Like the scientists uh, should pay more attention to, to social media. Uh, a lot of the scientists I know are on uh, Twitter. So I spend a lot of time on Twitter because that's where the sort of like all the science people like hang out really. And uh, but I would love because it's it's less because on Instagram you need to have like an image or a video. And so not so some there's some great people on Twitter doing science communication without they're not photographers, they're not filmmakers, they're just great science communication people. And it's a great place to 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 do that. But I would love to see that moved like to more widespread, like a more sort of like across across the board but it is very i forgot the exact question you just asked because i'm just digressing no, i think you answered but, uh, yeah we, we need we just, need everyone um we need a yeah that's yeah. it like with this podcast it's a conservation tribe and the whole idea behind it is to build a tribe of every conservationist you know conservationists don't all have to be in the science space like i'm not in the science space but yet pretty much my end goal is similar to yours. Like I want to yeah. get as many conservationists, amplify the impact and help as many of them as possible because we want to protect our planet ultimately. And these conservationists can be in any, any field and we, we need to unite all our individual actions and align them to a common cause. And I think that's how we'll get some shit done. Yeah, and I really like when you said like they come from many fields, and that is something I really like as well. I get the probably one of the most biggest question I get when I do workshop is people are like, okay, I'm a scientist, but I don't do field biology in the middle of a biodiverse rainforest. I do like modeling in labs or this, and that's how because it is it is true it is much easier to showcase something that's inherently visual. You know the the classic field biologists in the tropics, the field biologists in, in the in the desert. But I've had uh, one or two projects this year where we've had to to shoot videos about things that were completely lab based, and uh, and it's another it's another challenge. And it was very interesting. And and uh, so yeah, the the fact that you said it, you got to bring like a lot of people together and uh, give a sort of like amplify the work of people. And it's great when you can do that with things that aren't your classic species as well someone studying some cryptic mushroom or just things like that or someone studying things about uh, micro bats um, flying foxes or things that aren't like you know the public's favorites things like that that's why it's great it would be great to to amplify across the board and get exposure to other other sort of like taxon as well totally agree and that's why it's so good to have so many people come from such different backgrounds because coming from a different background it was a common cause you get so much, such a range of ideas, like, you know, someone that thinks like an architect, but applies that to wildlife might think, might think differently to someone that comes with a software engineering background and applies that sort of stuff. Like there's something in everyone's brain is different and everyone's brain is great. And mm -hmm. it, I love when I sit down with new people and hear ideas or hear their thoughts on something that, that I knew, but I'd never thought of it that way. That's why diversity is great in general. You just get all of these, you learn things, you get unique perspectives and everyone, if we, if we approach diversity with an open mindset, we all win. And I think, and everyone has like, can, can, can have a great input in the project. I always use the sort of example where, uh, one time we were doing, um, some field work in the, in remote, in the, in the outback. And we were there just looking at specific wildlife and uh, we had a geologist come with us and he was like completely rediscovering what was around it. He was, we were looking 
at the same pile of rocks, but we were looking at two complete different way that both were like made complete sense, but it was just amazing to, he was listening to us talking about how, how we see this pile of rocks and how it's habitat and how it is. And he was looking at it not from a geology point of view. He's like, well, there's a fault here and it's moving here. And that's why you see this valley. And then we're like, oh, that's why it's just, and you would be the same with a botanist. You walk through like a, a patch of bush with a botanist, a zoologist and a geologist and, um, and an entomologist. Everyone's looking at something different in the same area. And uh, that's, that's going back to that sort of diversity. It's great if we can get people that are not from a science background, but have this conservation passion, this like hunger to, to share nature, to actually come together and like create using sort of yeah, different ideas. Yeah, because our unique skill sets will inevitably complement each other in like, a range of different scenarios. And that's it. And there's this, and then that way you reach more people. Some people might be just interested in the, in the fungus. Some people are just interested in this ants. And so if you get like this one, this one person becoming like the go to person to talk about ants on social media, it's great. Mm. Like things like that, it would be just awesome. I love fungus, by the way. That's something that I'm really interested in at the moment. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> fungus. Um, it's fascinating. Yeah, totally. Social media is a complex beast. As we kind of very, wrapped very, our head it's around, terrible and great at the same time. Yeah, and there's the consumption of content is done in a way that's kind of like superficial, and it's done at such like a rapid rate. So, in your opinion, what are some challenges associated with communicating and packaging as well a conservation message in a way that's digestible to the everyday person? The challenge is like walking that sort of like line between, I would say, like the the classic media exaggerating everything and uh, the, the really sort of dry, dry science. And the, the challenge is to, to walk, walk that line and, uh, and have it still having entertaining, but factual at the same time mm-hmm. without like being too much on one side or too much on, on the other. And I think that's, that's a challenge. And, uh, and that comes with like the, as you say, the, the package, every, every format is different. Every, every platform has a different way to of people it. like, yeah, people like ingest content in a very different way on a different platform. And it's, an, I think it's a matter a lot of uh, people finding the one they're really comfortable with, the one that they like to work with. So I would say that, um, something that, um, Instagram is probably like sort of editing heavy maybe for a few people because you have different formats. You can have, you have your stories, you have the, and they're not, they're not like very regular formats as well. Like you, you square the, the portraits of like a weird format for people that just, it seems like a lot for them when they arrive, like, I just want to share this. So yeah, the, the challenge is how to try and make this sort of like digestible. For me, it's like for the scientists, really, but I thought for like anyone that wants to do it, but my, my the primary people I deal with is the, the, the scientists and trying to like walk that, that sort of like line with them. We were talking about kind of certain people on Instagram that maybe push that ethical boundary of kind of what content should be. As a wildlife photographer and videographer, do you have a code of ethics that you follow? Well, it's it's very like context based, you know. Um, for example, I'm, I never try like move anything, but when I'm working with scientists, they're handling animals. So when I was working on frogs, I had the frogs to look at them, put a radio tracker, and then before releasing them, I would put them on a leaf and take a take a shot. But something that's really uh, important i think it's being transparent and i try to be as transparent as possible being like this was done doing science therefore there was some handling involved 
and uh, and I always try and do that. And I do that with a lot of people I teach as well. Try and teach them that it's all about it's on sort of like the animal's will. It's you're not going to get a good shot by harassing something. You're going to get a good shot by being patient. And uh, and that's trying because it's a, uh, going back to sort of like you're saying everything is a fast paced to the media. We're scrolling through everything quickly. And so people are getting like less patient. And I think um, I try and stick with that. And I do a lot of uh, teaching with that. And I certainly do it myself. And I can see I've been shooting for a long time that my best shots came with uh, patience and luck. That's a, that's, that's what it is. And so trying to, yeah, not touch, not touch anything because it's just like, well, in Australia, there's a high chance of like, you might get bitten by something, but, um, yeah. So just trying to stick, I try to stick, uh, stick with that. In terms of the handling of the wildlife, why would you need to handle the wildlife just from someone that has no idea uh, the process? I think it's, it's also like, it's a very, you could do a whole podcast just about that. Handling it's wildlife. very interesting. Because um, yeah, I see some, I see some example like some wildlife. Uh, obviously, sort of, um, it's much easier to get sort of the, the shots you need with like a little bit of handling, like uh, notably like a lot of the um, the herbs, like your lizards and, and snakes, and uh, and uh, and for it's and same. It's a lot about like what you feel comfortable with. So I have a, a few friends, they're excellent herpetologists and uh, excellent like snake and the lizard photographers and the frogs and everything. And so I know that they would do everything in a, in a really nice way and, uh, and sort of uh, be really good. And the photo that they get at the end is not there for them just to be like getting likes and, and showing off. They actually put a lot of time educating people. They give these images to NGOs and things like that, which, and that's, that's why it's always like a bit gray area because you have the people that, that will do that, but just for the sort of the fame. And so that's where what I was saying before of being as transparent as possible is a very important. There is, um, this year there is, um, a fellow. I don't know how to pronounce his name. I think it's Javier. He just became a young fellow in the International League of Conservation Photographers. And, uh, he's been doing that for the past years. And it's really, really, really interesting and really good in terms of like he always says, I have, I have moved that animal. Well, I have not. I have moved it slightly. I was exactly detailing what has happened. He's like, I have found this here. I've relooked in the caption every time because see, he's uh, he's won. I think it was two years ago. He won the he won the wildlife photographer of the year. He won the macro section, I believe. And uh, so, it, like, it's obviously like got a lot more people following him through that. And I think it's been it's been amazing, like watching him just detailing every time. It's like in situ not in situ, this is why it's not in situ. And he'd spent a lot of time with biologists as well. He was like, they were studying this frog just before they released it after like weighing it. I took those photos or that's why it's perched so perfectly. It's all about that sort of transparency. Uh, and which going back to the problem with social media, it's all those unethical photos of like a beetle on the frog on a crocodile riding a unicorn with a hippopotamus on their head. Like those things that just like people love and, they, they, and a lot of that comes from like, again, sort of education. They don't know. They don't know that a, a beetle wouldn't be riding a frog. They don't know that that's not a natural pose for a frog. And so for that, so there's a lot of uh, other photographers and we do it a lot. I have like a, uh, a word document ready full of uh, it's on my phone it's on my computer full of links explaining showing example and like explaining plain nice words what's wrong with those photos and when i see some bigger accounts uh, sharing that because they don't know 
uh, I'll like tell them, hey, you know, this is this is not the greatest because that, and I give them the links, and they can like at least they have the information right there. And we've done that a few times this year with like a big account. So when I say we, there's like another a few other photographers. That's a good idea. And I and I get a lot of people as well like sending me photos and being like, hey, what about this one? Uh, is it like one of that case that you did a story about? So it's great to see that like it is like getting a bit of a, a bit of a, so it's all about like yeah, that that transparency because as well like for young photographers or people coming up, you don't want them to just you want to know how the shot was taken so you set sort of realistic goals for the the younger generation. They're like, how is that so close? Well, that's a big crop for this or that. Like just trying to be like. Or if you don't want to like put it every time on the caption or explain everything in detail, just be really open when someone asks you about it and someone comes up like, oh, how did you get that shot? And I'm like, oh, I did this and this. Or I was with scientists, therefore I had access to this. Or I've been studying that animal for 20 years, so I know exactly what I'm doing. I think with respect to where the person is physically handling the animal in the actual photo, I think it is quite important to explain a bit the rationale behind why you're doing that in in the caption just because how someone perceives the photo doesn't necessarily align with the intention of the photo. That's exactly right because you got to remember it's someone thousands of kilometers away looking at your photo on a on their phone they might have a complete different idea of like how you got the shot and be like oh he probably he must he's going to be like oh he probably did this and that and I'll do the same sort of stuff so it's it's all about that sort of like transparency and if you have the chance and if you're actually teaching people to really make that like clear to them so i always try and 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 do that so you mentioned that you um you've been doing freelance photography and videography for a couple of years what are some of the pros and cons of living that sort of lifestyle and um, do you have any tips for anyone that may be interested in following in your footsteps uh, well, like the, I'll start with the cons. Um, like with most, I guess, freelance is that you got to find, like, what when you, especially when you start, you got to find the the work. You got to really like hustle and chase it up. But then it's the the thing that's the less glamorous part of like shooting is you have to do invoicing, accounting, marketing, um, like all those things that come with the freelance. You are like a small business by yourself so there's all the things and uh, it can be like quite um, quite overwhelming and uh, quite frustrating and then i used to see before i went freelance all those like people sharing memes or graphs being like you know like photography as a hobby like 99 percent like fun and photography as work and you'd be like 10 percent fun shooting like 20 percent chasing unpaid invoices 25 percent uh like you know, breaking gear and this and that. So, and it's sort of like, yeah, I didn't really think about it before, but then it's, that's probably yeah, the biggest sort of like on it's, you just got to know a lot about a lot to, to, to make sure that you are getting most of uh, sort of your freelance work and getting a lot of freelance work. And especially if it's an area that you don't have a lot of contact, like I said, I had a lot of science contact and a lot of media. So the first like year and a half was like a bit of a, it was like hard because you, they, they know you as the, the science and they've seen what you've done, but it's just trying to like show people what you can do. And then and it's a lot about getting a lot of people knowing about that. That's okay. the, probably like the biggest con, like uh, just having to do all of those things yep. in the same amount of time than, than like a normal job. 
the the pros it's obviously like you know you you setting your own like hours if i want to be editing at night no one's going to be here to tell me that you have to work from like nine to five being able to work a lot like being very mobile uh, i like to uh, like to travel and uh, and but also set up my office and uh, at home and i do enjoy working from home and working on a sort of like my my schedule and um and yeah not being like tied too much to anything so that's the case they're not really specific to like wildlife photography, but they're just specific to like freelance in a, in general. Yeah. The main tip that I can think of that I tell a lot of people that ask me about, because I do get like very good message about how do you get to do what you do and I want to do that and things. And it's like, you know, just work. Right? It sounds silly, but yeah, it's like work, work hard at it and uh, shoot what you want to be paid to shoot. So even if you don't have a client right now, but you want to be paid to shoot, uh, science video or surf video find if you have friends that surf be like i'm going to make a small video about you and uh, maybe i look at it in 10 years and i'll be like this is the worst video i've ever made but you you like just do it just shoot because it's a don't let yourself you know don't be stopped by gear because people 15 years ago like gear was like so much different than now and it didn't stop people like making amazing content and it's the exact same now don't let that stop you it's easy to get caught and, and be like you know, and being like, oh, yeah, I need this, I need that. If you don't have it right now, just try and make do it and shoot it. And that's exactly what I did for like my first sort of video I used as a pitch. And uh, I just specifically left uh, my main camera home and I just shot with that. I just got it at the time as a tiny uh, camera, which everyone hated online. And then, but I was like, that, that doesn't matter. It works exactly the way I need it to work and I'm going to, I'm going to use it. And so, yeah, just, uh, that's my tip is to just shoot, just, just do it and shoot what you want to be paid to shoot. Because then once the opportunity comes around, it doesn't matter if you've been paid or not for your previous work. If you have an excellent science video, a great sort of like clip of that specific wildlife, no one cares if you were paid or not to do it because you can show that I shot that and that's the sort of quality of work I can do. And then they will pay you to do it. And that's sort of like how you how you do it. But you just you have to go out and, um, you know, if you're really passionate about it, go out on your own and just shoot, shoot, shoot. Just do it. All right. We're near, nearing the end, um, but I've got one more question to finish off. But before we get to that question, how can people connect with you online? Um, my Instagram is at Leraco. That's L-E-R-A-K-O. Uh, I've been really slack this past six months because I've been Probably that's been the busiest six months of my uh, freelance time. So I've um, sort of neglected that area a bit, but that's the, yeah, I'm, I'm on it a lot. So on Instagram, uh, I've been posting more on uh, YouTube as well, trying to get sort of like a more longer, longer form format things uh, on there. I'm currently rebuilding my website. So there's no point going to my website. No one goes to my website, please. I'm rebuilding. Everything's broken. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's all, uh, it's, Probably, yeah, like on my Instagram and, uh, and the YouTube, that's the easiest way. Always happy to answer any questions that that, uh, that people have. People often have questions about gear. I'm a massive nerd about gear and equipment in terms of like what you can do with it. And I love telling people exactly that they don't need to buy the fanciest or more expensive. They just need to get what's right for what they want to do. And um, but and I love answering questions about wildlife or I, I do get a lot of blurry videos where you can sort of like see a sort of shape in the sky. People ask me what bird that is. That's a very <laughs> classic. So I do. I do love that's a good challenge. And so, yeah, if you have any of those, send them through. But yeah, yeah that's the main main area. Definitely hit them up on on Instagram. I'll add all the links and I'll do some podcast promo stuff and um, they'll have some links so they can easily check you out and, and give you a follow. 
Um, so yeah, do that. Uh, and the last question is, what question or thought do you want to leave the conservation tribe? Maybe more than a question. It, it's a thought and it's, um, it's like a, a statement that just keep on doing what you're doing, conservation tribe. I love the, the idea of the podcast. I love the idea of the conservation tribe. I, I love the idea of uh, all those um, quiz that you're putting online and that you're doing and just the, that whole like community aspect. It's, it's really good. And so my, my thought just, uh, yeah, just keep on doing it. And if like to the people listening as well, don't think that your impact is just too small. Just keep on, keep on at it. Keep on talking to friends, to family about wildlife, about nature, about something in the conservation realm, you never know like who you're going to touch or how it's going to sort of impact people. It's, it's just, yeah, just keep on, keep at it. So yeah, I don't have, I don't have a question. I just have a motivational message. Just keep on doing it because I just love it. And, uh, and yeah, we need more people. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again, and I will see you in the next episode.